Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you would take your Bibles to Matthew 12. Thank you for coming and celebrating the resurrected Jesus with us. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We can say that every Sunday, uh, but as we still are so close to the Easter season, being able to uh, bask in the glory of remembering and delighting in the resurrection of our Savior from the dead. Matthew chapter 12, this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 14, and we'll be in this text uh, this Sunday and next, uh, looking at the subject of the law of God, and specifically as regards to the Sabbath. This week we'll primarily look at the text and the bigger purpose of the law, the Sabbath regulations, and then next week we'll focus in on more the practicality of the Sabbath for us today. Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean for us believers? It's one of the Ten Commandments to observe the Sabbath and to keep it holy. But there are some Christians who today say that Jesus has fulfilled the law and there is no mandate to observe a Sabbath now or a day of rest. So all of your questions, just so you are aware, might not be answered today. And maybe not next week even. Uh, Might not focus on everything you hope to in the discussion today, but hopefully in these two weeks we can get a better, more thoroughly biblical understanding of the law, Sabbath, and rest. If at the end of this Sunday you feel like there's something that's in, big question, uh, feel free to email me at any time and say, hey, I hope you're going to mention this, or have you thought about this? Can we get to that uh, as well? So that would be helpful. Matthew chapter 12, and we'll read through uh, the first 14 verses. I'll read out loud. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. It says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Would you join me as we pray and just ask the Lord uh, for his blessing on the preaching of his word. Our Father, we do ask that you would uh, open our eyes that we may see, and that you would continue to put us in submission to you your Holy Spirit, to your word as we hear it. And uh, Father, would you give us the desire to delight in it and to obey it? 
We ask that you would be with us and bless us. Please read distractions from us for these next few minutes. Give us an opportunity to be able to hear and understand the scriptures, uh, be able to take them to heart. And God, would you continue to change us by means of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not usually one for object lessons. You know what that means. I have an object lesson. So this is a dryer ball, for those of you that cannot see it in the back. This is a dryer ball. This dryer ball represents my relationship to Jesus. I love Jesus, and for the most part, life is, and loving Him is pretty easy. I can kind of juggle this, keep this up in the air, and most of the time, catch it without any real trouble. This is my relationship to Jesus, but add a second dryer ball to the mix. And this ball now represents, as I desire to follow Jesus, the greatest commandment that Jesus has given to us. Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, with all your mind. Uh, Not too bad. As you can notice, it's kind of easy throwing up two balls and maybe even being able to do with the same hand like that, okay? But occasionally, I guarantee you, because I did it this morning multiple times, I'm going to drop them. Because while it's easy in some sense to keep two balls, especially like this, my kids were enjoying that, or, you know, something like where you're just tossing them back and forth. And while it's easy, relatively speaking, to do that, if you have hand-eye coordination of some sort or just monkey around with, you know, little balls like this and stuff, it doesn't take too much work. I can go for a little while, but eventually my eyes will get crossed I get tired of keeping balls in the air. On my own, I can't do it perfectly. Not even something that's relatively simple. In keeping one command of God, I need the Holy Spirit to give me the ability and the desire to keep going when I fall short. However, some of you know that Jesus not only says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, but he also says, and there's a second one to it, which adds now a third gyre ball. Now there's a third or a second command that's given to us as followers of Jesus. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now it gets more technical. This begins to be really stressful, especially having to do it in front of other people who are watching. (laughs) Who are saying, okay, circus boy, show us what you got, okay? So then to be able to keep three balls going gets a little bit hairier, okay? And I didn't know how to do this until a friend in college taught me the technique And that's all we're going to do, because I can't do four. I promise you that. Keep a day job, right? That's all I've got. I can't do the flaming pens or nothing like that. But it gets really stressful. The balls represent the laws that God gives. And you saw the difficulty that mounts where some of you are going, yeah, I can throw a ball in the air and catch it. Almost every time. Two balls, eh, a little bit more difficult, but not too bad. Three balls, I can't do that. Or I stop at four. You might stop at more than that. Maybe you can really juggle and maybe have a professional career with the traveling circus. But at some point, there reaches a limitation where you say, I can do no more. We've been given these commands by our Savior. To follow Him has these commands. We will eventually fall. The balls will eventually fall to the ground. We know there are more commands or things that God gives to us in His Scripture But when Jesus comes, he says that he has fulfilled the law, and he gives us just these two great commandments. 
Everything God in the New Testament commands of us can be summed up in these commandments. And while it's stressful, in some sense, it isn't such a huge burden. But now imagine that you are God's people in the Old Testament. Israel was not given just two commands, a great commandment and another one. But they were given ten laws, a decalogue, commandments. And then after those are given even more, like 603 more. So you have 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament, which the first five books of Moses are called the law or the Torah. Now just imagine trying to juggle 613 balls. Of course not. You would be buried underneath them. The weight, especially if they weren't dryer balls, which are actually really light, the weight of all of those would be a massive burden to shoulder. Because there are so many laws, it would be easy easy to focus on keeping the law and get your focus off the purpose of the law, just to try and keep some of them up in the air. Your eyes are fixated on what you're doing with your hands and with your eyes. It takes constant uh, observance and being able to focus in on the task that you're doing. And you would get your eyes off of what that purpose is. You would not be asking yourself why the law exists, but instead only asking how, how to keep this many laws. When you have that many laws, there's a constant need for help and dependence on God and His wisdom, which would be crucial constantly. The burden of keeping the law would be great unbearable, impossible. This is why Jesus states in Matthew 11, the passage that we looked at for two weeks right before this text. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have burdens? Yeah, because of the law, there's great burdens, great pressure. Jesus is here not only offering rest for those who are burdened under the difficulties of living in a fallen world, under the curse of sin, suffering and death, but also those burdened under undue religiosity. The demand of some for religious perfection is an unbiblical and demanding damaging demand. This is the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are constantly heaping unattainable expectations onto the people of God. Not only do they have 613 laws, but then they have others which are observations or regulations in which to help you keep those laws. So in order to keep this law to not work on the Sabbath, we now have more workarounds or regulations that they can keep themselves. Growing up in church, I certainly was faced with a lot of laws, not biblical rules either, and not always biblical way of looking at those rules, but a lot of rules within the church. Did you know that the Bible does not tell children that they should not run in church? Did you know that the Bible does not tell children they cannot draw or color while listening to the sermon? Did you know the Bible does not tell children that Jesus wants them to be quiet and not talk during the sermon. Jesus wants the children to be seen and not heard. You can't find a verse for that. Did you know the Bible does not tell children to not chew gum in church? 
And then when it's lost its flavor, to wad it up in a piece of paper and put it in the offering plate as it goes by. (laughs) You won't find that in Scripture. We wonder why some children never wanted to attend church when they got out on their own. It's because we are not teaching them about who God is and the story of God as seen from Scripture. Instead, we tell them Christianity is about rules and religion. And while we won't say that, we preach that with our actions and what we tell them when we're at church or why they should read their Bibles or why they should obey. We all of a sudden make God to be the bad guy. We all of a sudden put God on uh, display as the one who is telling them because we don't have the guts to actually tell them what is good and right and beautiful. And so instead, we tell them no. Instead of giving them a vision for what is good and glorious that they should pursue, they should pursue to not talk or make noise in church because of their love for one another and their desire to be reverent to Christ. Not simply because Jesus says somewhere in Hezekiah 13 that you should be quiet and not be heard. The law was not about telling the Israelites no. The law was not to tell the Israelites, the people of God, to not have any fun. Welcome to the people of God. Leave your fun at the door. But the law was a gift to them. The law was meant to give life. It was to unite them to their God and He to them. We cannot read the Scriptures and view the law like a list of prohibitions, but we ought to read the law like wedding vows. The law came to Adam and Eve after creation. They are made in the image and likeness of God. Everything is seen as very good. God gives a law to His people at that time when everything is still very good. And His desire to do so was that they might have perfect fellowship with Him and not die. He wanted them to live, and He wanted them to live in relationship with Him. It wasn't merely a, hey, let's see how this goes. Hey, uh, don't do that. This will be fun. His desire was that they might be with him and they might enjoy the fellowship that is with Christ. The law comes to Israel, the Ten Commandments, the covenant that God makes with his people on the mountain after redemption. God chose Israel to be his people. We see that all the way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He freed them. And God was giving them mercy by sharing with them how they can live in fellowship with Him and not die. The law was not merely to make their lives miserable under a burden that they could not remove. But the desire was to have a relationship with God, to walk in fellowship with Him, that they might be able to give Him their burdens and find rest in obedience, and the beauty of living a life according to the way God has set, instead of doing what is right in their own eyes, to see the gift that is mercy from the Creator God Himself, who has called them into relationship with Him. From the very beginning of life in the garden with God to the very end in eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth, it is about a relationship with Him. And the law drives one to this relationship with God, that you might be in fellowship and not die. So now enter Jesus. As Jesus says earlier in Matthew, that He has come not to abolish or get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. The law is good. It was meant to lead us to God. But now God in mercy has not used just the law to bring us into relationship with God. 
But now God in His mercy came down to us and through faith unites us to Himself, not by means of laws, but by the person of Christ Himself. And Jesus comes and tells us to follow Him. Jesus comes and tells us the law is fulfilled by you in obedience, in your own heart, following after Christ in this relationship that is with Him. The law is much lighter in Christ. The burden has already been taken by Jesus. Jesus knew we could never keep the law perfectly, so He did. He kept it perfectly for us. You think back to the juggling and the balls. Jesus juggled the 613 balls perfectly and never, ever dropped one. And He did so not for us to be bogged down by a list of laws, but He did so that we might have life. This distinction about the law is the crux of our text this morning. There are two scenes that we looked at, verses 1 through 8 and then 9 through 14. One where Jesus is walking with the disciples through a field of crops, eating some of the crops on the Sabbath, and the other where Jesus heals a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The two main issues in regards to the law fly in the face of the Pharisees and us. And the issues are the authority of the one who is... Lord of the Sabbath, and the other is dialogue. It may sound like a strange one, but we'll see, I think, as we get down to that section. Now, who has the authority to say what can or cannot be done on the Sabbath? Only God Himself, right? And what happens when someone says or does something that I disagree with? You did something on the Sabbath, and I don't think you can do that on the Sabbath, Jesus. That's what the Pharisees are saying. So what do I do when somebody does something or says something that I disagree with? It is strange, in a sense, to say that in regards to Jesus, because in regards to Him, we submit, right? He says it. He's our shepherd. We follow Him. But we'll look at some text to see what does it look like when someone brings up Scripture in regards to their position on something regarding the Sabbath, maybe, or regarding something else. So, as we look at these two different scenes, the first one and going into the second one, we'll look at the authority of Jesus over the Sabbath. The authority of Jesus over the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with what Jesus and His disciples are doing. As it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, they're walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. The disciples are hungry and they begin to pluck heads of grain and eat them. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They're walking and plucking grains uh, off of heads uh, of grain and eating them. At that time, fields were not separated by fences, uh, but by landmark stones. Paths sometimes that people walked went right across a field or closely skirted them. The grain that was being sown to the field's very edge, and sometimes even beyond the edge. So that sometimes you're walking through someone's field, but still maintaining walking on the path or close enough to it. And there's passages within the Old Testament that tell farmers how they ought to plant their fields and tells those who are traveling what it is that's their right in regards to someone else's field. So Deuteronomy chapter 23 says in verse 24, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes. Did you know that? 
as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. And verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. They're able to pluck these things as they walk through. They're not doing anything that it would be disregarding the Sabbath commands. It could be possible that they're exceeding the amount of journeying and walking, which is about 1,100 meters on a Sabbath day. But the Pharisees are finding fault with them and what they're doing. Why are the Pharisees even there in the field? Why are they watching them? You would imagine that the fields are somewhat close to town and they're not all that far away, but it still seems strange that Pharisees are observing Jesus and his disciples walking through a field and then making comment about it. Are they chasing after them? You have to imagine it's sort of a strange scene. Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives us the command of the Sabbath. And notice the language that it uses in regards to the observation of the Sabbath day that the Jews would have known. It says in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You see the language that ties the command for the Sabbath, which in the Ten Commandments, if you just look at the list of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath day commandment is probably five to six times longer than any other command that is given. And the Sabbath is tied to both creation and to redemption. You saw this in the analogy that's given to verse, uh, the reference to Genesis in verse 13. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. The same way that God worked six days and rested on the seventh. It's tied back to creation. It's also tied to redemption. As he says, you remember you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Therefore, God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The observing of the Sabbath is tied to creation and to redemption. The people of Israel would have known this. There were lots of laws regarding the keeping of the Sabbath. Jesus would have surely known the keeping, what the keeping of the Sabbath looked like. Jesus lives perfectly on earth. He's certainly not disobeying God's commands. But here you have God who set up a rule for his people to obey, the rules of the Sabbath, and yet the Jews have given so many rules and regulations in keeping the Sabbath. As one author, D.A. Carson, says, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains being held by a hair. For the teaching of Scripture is scanty, and the rules are many. The rules outweighed the regulation or what Jesus was commanding in the law itself. And Jesus lets the Pharisees know by means of stories that they've gotten it all wrong. The point is not strict Sabbath observance, and especially watching others' strict observance of the Sabbath. 
Notice Jesus, as he establishes authority over the Sabbath, he does so by means of two stories. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, or those who were with him, but only for the priests. This story is found in 1 Samuel 21, and it's, if you can have a list of some of the saddest stories in Scripture, this would be one of mine. If you're familiar with the story at all, David uh, is starving, and he and his men come uh, to Nob and to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech comes out to meet David, uh, and the text says in 1 Samuel 21, trembling, and asks him, why are you alone? And no one is with you. Then David lies. And then David gets the bread that he is the bread of the presence that was to be uh, there continually in the tabernacle as a sign of the covenant, Leviticus 24 says. So David says, we are starving. Give me the five loaves of bread or whatever you have that is here. David answers, uh, or the priest says, have these men who are with you kept themselves from women. Are they keeping themselves pure and maintaining uh, the laws of purification? David answers the priest, of course they are. So the priest gives him the holy bread. There was no other bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the Sabbath. So most likely this is the Sabbath day as the bread was exchanged and David eats it. And guess what? The scripture never condemns him for doing so. Jesus does not condemn David for doing so. He just says to the Pharisees, didn't you read this story? Haven't you read that David, when he was hungry, did this and fed he and his men with bread that was typically prohibited from others to eat on the Sabbath? And guess what? Jesus just leaves that hanging. All of us are wondering, is it okay for David to have done that? Jesus doesn't talk anything about David lying about the bread and how he got it. But we're all wondering in our own minds, in our desire to have rules that are set out for us that are easy to follow, was he allowed to do that? Jesus uses the story to show them that David was not charged with wrongdoing by the priest. He wasn't charged by doing Abimelech, the priest, wasn't supposed to give him the bread. He wasn't charged by wrongdoing. And God didn't charge him with wrongdoing. As Leviticus 24 states about the bread of the presence, it is always to be there as a reminder to the people of God that God provides for them, that God has established his covenant with them. It says it's to be a sign for the people of Israel as a covenant forever, Leviticus 24.8, to show them that God feeds them, that God has good for them, and that the bread of life is always with them. The bread of the presence symbolizes life, life eternal in the presence of God. But it would be ironic for David and his men to starve when there was bread right there. Bread that symbolized life. Oh, but you can't have it. We're dying. Sorry, you don't understand. This bread always has to kind of stay right here. It's the rules. David and his men are given the bread, and Jesus says nothing about it. Why? Because Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Jesus has the authority to say to one thing, that this is right and good, and this is necessary for life. 
Notice the other scenario that happens. Verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? You want to know who broke the Sabbath laws every single Sabbath? Every single priest broke the laws. Guess who's working on the Sabbath? The priest. Guess who's working a lot on the Sabbath? Have you guys ever read the first five books of the Old Testament? You see how many animals they're slaughtering on the Sabbath? Those of you who slaughter animals, you know what kind of work that is, right? It's a lot of hard work. You're butchering animals. You're putting them on an altar. You're burning them to pieces. You're doing all of this work on behalf of the people. But guess what? You're working on the Sabbath, and God holds them guiltless. Why? Because God can look at the laws of the Sabbath and see what the priests are doing. And what the priests are doing are standing in between God and man that he might bring them, the priests might bring the people to God, that God might see the sacrifices and have mercy on his people, that they might continue to live and not die. The priest is all of a sudden in this role of interceding on behalf of the people And even though the priest is breaking the law every Sabbath day, it is serving the people of God by continuing to remind them of the covenant God has made with them. And God says, not only am I going to hold you guiltless, but this is good and right, and I'm going to sanctify it, and I'm going to make it. This is exactly what you are to do. God knew, and he's setting it all up. There's people who are breaking this every single week. But God established it that way. God has bigger and greater purposes all throughout the Old Testament, and it is always to point to Christ. Withholding the bread from David and his men would be like us. If someone was to come into our church dying of thirst, and the only liquid around is communion wine or grape juice that we use at the Lord's Supper. Someone is dying of thirst, and we go to them and we say, I'm sorry that you're dying of thirst, sir. But you see, this is only for believers and only during the Lord's Supper. Come back on a Sunday when you're a Christian and slam the door. To be able to say, no, God's good and wise purposes are for life. And God desires that by this you might live. It's much greater purpose than the keeping of a law or keeping of a rule or a regulation. I'd much rather have kids in church, running or not, than being telling kids a rule, you cannot run in this church. And treating this building as if it is the temple of God himself or God's presence himself. This is an auditorium, not a sanctuary. This is not a holy place. God is the holy one. We are his people. The building is nothing special other than a place where we gather as the body. Now, I want to teach my kids respect and love and care for others. So I tell them, Please don't run around older people who have a hard time walking, but run around other people and bump into them and give them an elbow and goof around with them, maybe. But watch out for others. Why? Because we care and love others, and we desire that they live and have life. And so the law is meant to point us to Christ who brings life, not merely to be all these rules and prohibitions that all of a sudden squelch everything of Life that is life-giving, and the running in church is simply silly somewhat, but sometimes can become a focus of people when they're leaving church instead of what we've just done here. 
And that's been able to come into God's presence as a body together and to worship Him, the one who has brought us life and continues to do so all throughout the week. We all of a sudden begin to miss the point. And it's interesting when I read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, I find myself wagging my finger at the Pharisees going, how dare you? You guys are morons. How did you miss this? Jesus is right there. And I can leave church and go, no, those kids are running around church. No, those kids, somebody, you see what they did to our building. Make a whole bunch of grumbling and silliness. We'll stop there. The point, Jesus tells the Pharisees, they're focusing on the wrong thing by giving them stories. They're always focusing on the wrong thing. They care more about regulations and specifics regarding the law than they do God himself and his people. They are more concerned about what is being done on a particular day than the fact that people are hungry. They're missing the forest for the trees. They're standing in front of the author of the law. They're standing in front of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And they can only see specifics being disregarded. At least specifics that they think are being disregarded, and they're missing the whole point of the law. The law was never, merely, was never given merely to keep people from doing things. It was given so that the people of God might see how life is best lived in God's presence for all of eternity. If they want to live wisely and follow the Lord, they will see the joy of living life according to His law. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. As a teenager growing up under a rules-oriented church, all silly, a lot of unbiblical laws, I never understood Psalm 119. What are you talking about? You love God's laws. I can't wait to get out from under them because we were missing the point. One was not supposed to use the law as a way of catching people and condemning them. The law was never meant to be a means of abuse or of abusing others. But if they want to live wisely, if we want to live wisely and follow the Lord, we will see the joy of living life according to His law. Jesus is the one who is Lord over the law, not the law Lord over Jesus. And Jesus says, through the law, it's not about sacrifice. It never was. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, Hosea 6, 6 says. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The offerings and the sacrifices, the Sabbath regulations, were all meant to point you back to God, to Jesus ultimately, but back to God in your relationship with Him. Jesus is the one who says what is good and right to do. Jesus is the one in the next scene who says it's good to heal someone on the Sabbath. It's good for you to pull your animal out of the ditch on the Sabbath because it's good and right. Pah to all the regulations. This is good and it's right in front of our eyes. This is life-giving. Your animal will die if it stays in the ditch. And so will you. If you stay in the ditch, you are of much more value to God. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The text says that Jesus, as you notice in verse 9, and moving into the second scene, Jesus goes and he enters their synagogue. I don't know why that two-word phrase struck me as funny, but it doesn't say the synagogue, and it doesn't say the house of the Lord, but it says the synagogue of the Pharisees, their synagogue. 
All of a sudden, they're coming. He is coming into their synagogue, a place where they are the rulers. And he is showing them who is the one who establishes what is good and what is right, what it means to obey the scriptures. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the one who sets himself as the author, the authority over our schedule, over our lives. When we follow him, the command is to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And the second is likened to it, to love our neighbor as ourself. Micah 6, 6 says, With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. All of a sudden you go, that doesn't look anything like the first five books of the law that give all of these laws. Because we, like the Pharisees, often can miss the point of who is the authority? Who is it that we are listening to? Who is setting the rules and regulations over us? Is it us who puts the scripture under our authority? Or is it God in the scriptures who we sit under its authority, and we're learning from what God's Word says, not telling God's Word what it will say. That will affect how we look at the second point. And we'll just mention briefly, notice the response. Uh, The second point is the Pharisees refused to dialogue with Jesus in regards to their disagreements. Jesus is the author, the authority. He establishes that, as we mentioned in the first point. And the Pharisees refused to dialogue with Jesus in regards to their disagreements. The whole situation here, Jesus is completely disagreeing openly in front of them. He's telling them stories that show them he has the authority. He's healing right in front of them in their synagogue. He's doing everything that they don't want him to do right now. And how do they respond? Look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and thought about the truths that Jesus mentioned, and pondered them, and came back and had dialogue with Jesus. Rabbi, teach us how these things might be true. No, that's not what they did. They went out, and now all of a sudden we begin to see this mounting opposition to Jesus and his teaching. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You're teaching different than us. We don't like what you're doing. We will destroy you. No dialogue. No ability to come to Jesus and to have a conversation about disagreements. Instead of talking about things that they, uh, they're always wanting to catch him in error. They bring up questions and things so that they might catch him. It even said that in the second section. They asked him about healing someone so that they might accuse him, it says in verse 10. They don't care about truth, but they care about tradition. Romans 14 gives a whole chapter on how it is that we as Christians can disagree with one another when we are convinced in our own minds of what the truth is. Romans 14, in the beginning of verse 5, all the way through the end of the chapter, begins to show us as believers that there are going to be people who disagree and who do so convinced in their own minds that this is the truth of the Scripture. And Romans 14 doesn't say one person is wrong and the other person is right. And so your job is to convince the other person of the right position but it teaches us how to be fully convinced in our own mind and to love one another. Even when someone, as it says in verse 6, 
of Romans 14, the one who observes the day, the Sabbath, honors it and honor the Lord. Or the one who eats meat that was sacrificed to idols, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gave thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Mark 2, in the same text, says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God has made us right in his image, good in the image of God, that God has continued to desire a relationship with us, giving us life, and he did so by means of the law. He does so even more by the person of Christ. Christ has come that we might have life and life in him. Christ is the one who is Lord over all of these rules and regulations. And when all of a sudden we see something like this and disagree with one another, what is it? What's the position that we might have in disagreement on the Sabbath? Or in regards to any of these other laws or something else taught in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Meat, sacrifice to idols, wine. Those are things that are mentioned in Romans 14. How is it that we as believers can disagree with one another? First and foremost, it's by recognizing our authority is Christ and not ourself. And so then being able to dialogue in regards to those differences. Brothers and sisters, we're going to close knowing that next week we get to come back and look at those practicalities of what does the Sabbath look like for us as believers today? What, it, what ought it to look like? for us today. If we're not practicing it, if we're not practicing a day of rest, why? And what does a day of rest look like? And should we do it? Is there any benefit to it? The first rebuttal might be, you have no idea how busy we are. And I think to that, Jesus would say, I am Lord of the Sabbath. You have no idea what our lives are like. You have no idea what Sundays are like for us. Hey, you have no idea what Sunday's like for me. Like the priest, I profane the Sabbath every single week. Some will say it's the only day I work, but that ain't true. Okay, we'll close recognizing the Lord is our authority in all things and the goodness of the law that was meant to point us to Jesus. And with that, I think we'll be fed. And with that, I think we'll look forward to coming back again next week, I hope, and looking at this again. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to look into your word, to be able to see Jesus, the one who has come to give life and life uh, abundantly, the one who comes seeing the goodness of all that you have done in the Old Testament, especially as it points to you, and one who uh, desires to continue drawing us into relationship with you as we have relationship with him. We've been united to Christ. We have been shown mercy. We have been given so much good. Not only was our hand healed, but our whole life was healed. We were brought from dead to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and we've been given eternal life in Christ. We've been shown abundant mercy. We've not been given what we deserved. And yet God gave us new life in himself. Now the one who has come. And the one who gave his life, that we might have life. What a joy for the follower of Jesus to be able to observe all that he says, to recognize that he is Lord of our life, not as one who demands it as an abusive overlord, 
but one who speaks like a lover to his beloved, one who speaks to one who is united to himself in perfect union. It will be so for all of eternity. What joy to follow Jesus as our authority, and what joy to follow him even when there's disagreement, even when there's difficult things that begin to rub against what we've always been taught. Help us to respond with grace and mercy. Help us to be able to respond with words of life. And we pray this all, asking for your blessing and the remainder of our time together. Amen.